Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. In this episode, we discuss Alzheimer's disease, genetics, the myths around them, and our evidence-based plan for preserving brain health and preventing disease. We call it the Neuro Plan. It's a personalized, comprehensive plan that will give you the power to not only avoid catastrophic diseases like dementia and stroke, but to continue to manifest the full capacity of your amazing brain at any age. You will quickly learn that our plan is not based on some gimmick or a vitamin regimen, but relies on behavioral models that we have shown to give you the kind of habits that build brain capacity at any age. I hope you enjoy this episode. Dean, we're here again, and we're going to talk about Alzheimer's disease this time. Absolutely. Um, even more than Alzheimer's, actually. It's about um, the brain capacity, not to just avoid Alzheimer's, but to live a thriving, growing, capacity building. You know, all these terms that we hear about all this time, about leadership and, and cognitive capacity and emotional intelligence, that's what we're here for. I, I mean, agree with yeah. you. I agree with you. I think, you know, Alzheimer's disease is is a very heavy, loaded term. It, it comes with so many stories and um, it's, it's a scary word. And we've seen the devastation and the consequences of this disease. But to look on the positive side, it gives us an opportunity to understand the brain better. And, you know, I know that we're going to go into this, but... The, the complexity of this beautiful organ and um, the lack of understanding of how it functioned in the past, you know, and now that technology's, you know, getting better and we have better tools to understand better. I'm really excited to be in this field at this time. Absolutely. The brain is the center of the universe. We have now found the center of the universe. <laughs> it was here all along, right between our two ears. This amazing organ was always there. Some people started talking about it, uh, Galen and then, um, and then some other uh, you know, uh, anatomists and biologists in the 15th century and then uh, later on. And throughout history, some, some, some people said different things about it, but we were a more of a cardiocentric uh, um, you know, uh, uh, society. society. Right. Everything was in the heart. You know, the, even cognitive things were attributed to the heart. You know, you'll find it in your heart. No, you won't. You'll find it in your limbic system. You know, love is in your heart. No, it's in your amygdala and your frontal lobe. I would love it for people to have brain logos on Valentine's Day on their card. We will make it happen. <laughs> it should be brain logos without an arrow through it because it's kind of gruesome. But, but it is about the brain. We have finally found the brain and it's a remarkable organ. In fact, it's that remarkableness, I'll make up words here alone, that, that actually gives it this incredible prowess that takes you beyond Alzheimer's. We started our work in Alzheimer's because of our grandparents. Both yeah. of us had two grandparents that died from Alzheimer's. And in many ways, our journey started then when you were a few years old, at uh, four or five years old. Yes, I remember. I was about uh, nine or 10 years old when I right. first saw the, the, the effect of, it had on my grandmother and grandfather. Uh, and uh, but uh, the, the journey has been long but it has gotten us past Alzheimer's meaning that it's not like we are avoiding it we are seeing patients on a daily basis but we are seeing us having the potential not to only avoid Alzheimer's but to grow way beyond that it's because the brain is remarkable 
<clears throat> this three pound organ, which is 2% of our body's weight, is absolutely amazing. It has 87 billion neurons. We don't always use a lot of it. In fact, when people say we use 10% of it, no, no, we use 100% but 1% efficiency. I've said this before. But I want us to realize that what that means, because majority of the time, we're not using the full cognitive capacity of the brain. We are setting patterns, habit patterns, and most of what we do is retrace, recreate, reprogram the brain's habit pathways. But those habit pathways are everywhere. 99% of our daily life is around habit pathways. And now, uh, even our political views, and we'll get to that. We'll talk about how you know uh, the brain is involved in politics and now how brain is involved in music and in everything, because everything is in the brain and everything starts in the brain. So this remarkable brain that has 87 billion neurons and a quadrillion potential connections wow. is absolutely amazing. Its capacity withstand not just trauma, not just disease, but to grow well beyond you know, 60, 70, and 80. In fact, it, it is, it's under a lot of stress. The same way that on the one side, the positive side, it has that capacity, but it's also an incredibly energy-hungry organ. Mm -hmm. Even when people don't think a lot and they're going through their daily activities, which is usually just reflex and habit, it's consuming anywhere between 25 to 30% of energy and up to 30% of the oxygen. I mean, that's amazing. It this is. little energy-hungry organ. And it's overwhelmed. It was supposed to live up to 30 or so because by then, if you survived the first five years of all the infections and birth trauma and everything else, then you got to your adolescence and you went hunting and if you survived that, and then if you, uh, or, or grazing or whatever, and, and then mating, and if you survived that, and, and if you and then, you know, survived in a saber-toothed tiger or whatever, you know, by 30 you died. You had some children by then and you died. Right. And that was the evolution over millions of years. And it's so funny that when paleo people say that, you know, uh, this is, we're going to apply this diet from paleo time. Really? You're going to apply something. First of all, they actually have the diet wrong because bone data and feces data shows that they have it wrong. We were mostly herbivores. But even if you, let's say that's true, you're going to apply what applied to 30-year-olds on the average, actually less than that on the average, <clears throat> their survival situation and their survival needs, which was emergency and short-term, <clears throat> to long-term chronic diseases and chronic living, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. I it mean, you see sense. this. You see this so often on social media where somebody, you know, an influencer or somebody who wants to make a buck a buck or a buck. two, uh, you know, keep saying things like focus on eating fats and oils because our ancestors ate that way. And our ancestors didn't make it beyond 30 for the yes. most part. Yeah. And, and so where did they get the fat? How do we apply that concept to this, this day and age where, you know, most people live beyond 70s, 80s, 90s and beyond? So it's just crazy how we want to apply that to today's uh, lifestyle. The science is profoundly on the side, the other side. So we're actually giving a little bit away, but we're, we're gonna get to that end, uh, to that section as far as nutrition and lifestyle we fairly soon. We always get soon. excited. We do, we do, and it's good. Nutrition. Get used to this. Right. This is all 
uh, coming from <laughs> the passion centers of the brain, right. the the positive energy of the brain, the limbic system of the brain. So we we love this field. We know the power of this brain. We and and for us, it's not about just surviving disease, but it's about expanding cognitive capacity. In fact, we've written about this. Up to now, people talked about IQ, intelligence quotient, and then EQ, that's Goldberg, which is emotional quotient. Mm -hmm. We're talking about XQ, extraordinary quotient, the extraordinary capacity of any brain to grow beyond what you can ever imagine, to do way more than what you could ever imagine, to feel more than what you can ever imagine, to be, you know, we hear this thing, every little retreat we are invited to, be present. And I'm like, tell me what that means. Being present means being fully conscious of the moment, of the second, of 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 everything in that present in, in that moment. Right. And that's a cognitive state that you can have, you can have control over. You can develop. That's the beauty of 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 brain development and brain science. That where we are now in 21st century. And by the way, it doesn't happen through those biohacking pills or some trick here and there. It's a comprehensive approach. It's a living approach. It's a lived approach. That's the that's what we are hoping. By the way, you you shouldn't have to spend a penny. Maybe you should get our book. It's a, these are, but even that, j- listen to us. That's where the the answer is in 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 science based. If somebody's not selling you something, or then then and they're giving you enough data validated across multiple domains, not just a one off paper, one off meta analysis or one of meta analysis that's supported by some industry right uh, then then you can say okay there's strong enough evidence this way mm-hmm. so with that let's get into the brain and and people have lived incredibly vibrant brain healthy lives well into their 80s and 90s right we had people friends of ours uh, dr wareham here in loma linda that lived uh, to 104 and fully cognitively active and physically active and mentally and in every sense jane goodall She's who's writing a book now yes. with, with our uh, friend uh, uh, the, uh, you know the, um, so uh, this and many others uh, that lived not just cognitively active but productively Correct. picasso and you know lightness pauling and many 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 others i'm just naming the famous ones but so, there are many so others. we have great Examples. A great deal of example of people living of cognitively vibrant lives in their 80s, 90s, and beyond. So that the notion that you you're not able to do things anymore, or you're not able to be creative anymore, and old age is synonymous with you know pain and disability. That is false. It is. It is. But before we get to how to live that way. Uh, we have a big dilemma. I mean, we talked about Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's and dementia, which is the big category, is, is, impo- is an important place to start because if you avoid Alzheimer's and do the things necessary to avoid it, and we say that 90% of Alzheimer's can be avoided, 90% of Alzheimer's can be avoided within normal life. And initially this was controversial. In fact, four years ago, they actually stopped us from going to on a radio station. Not stopped us, but the, the, uh, one of the associations called say, "Oh, this is too controversial." It was the Alzheimer's Association. Oh, actually, it was the Alzheimer's Society, which is equivalent of Alzheimer's Association in the United States in the UK. Yes, the Alzheimer's Society called our uh, publishers, and they were very uncomfortable with us speaking about the relationship between lifestyle and Alzheimer's disease on TV. Yes, but now we feel so good. 
because this year that they they actually and in the big talk in uh, thousands of uh, neurologists and dementia specialists at the uh, Alzheimer's Association, Association International Conference. They the big uh, paper that was quoted and they actually did put it in their video was that sixty percent of Alzheimer's can be avoided. Right. And and last year was thirty percent. So we are feeling um, uh, redeemed. Uh, very exciting. Excited. Very excited to be at a time where people are understanding that it's not a pill. Uh, it's not a small approach that will um, get rid of this major problem of dementia and Alzheimer's disease, that we have to have a complex approach and that lifestyle matters. Correct. And we say 90% because the data that they quoted and, other, and several of them actually showed that what we consider suboptimal lifestyle, as far as diet, as far as exercise, as far as other things that we will get into, even that, which they considered optimal lifestyle, reduced risk by 60%. That's amazing. We, we, you can reduce it by 90%. And by doing so, you're not just avoiding the disease, you're actually growing your brain capacity. Right. That's what the, the, what the interesting thing is. Again, I say, it's not a gimmick. You don't have to go put butter in your coffee or go drink bone broth or uh, eat five eggs. These are all little gimmicks because they, they're equivalent of pill taking. Why? It's called the pill magic. You feel like you've just taken care of all your problems with one blue or red pill. It doesn't happen like that. The reductionist the, approach. The reductionist and, 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 and the control approach because the person feels more controlled by right. taking a pill. Right. Taking a few eggs is a pill. Mm-hmm. Drinking coffee with, with, with butter in it is a pill. You know, all these are just a myopic, but a, a false sense of control approach, which, which the charlatans are selling everybody. True. And to us, we, we call them that because we are physicians, we are public health people, and we see the consequences. And it's not a small matter. So, so it is a battle. It's an important battle. It started with our grandparents that we saw. And every day, every church, every faith community we go to, we see this. And every community that we work, in fact, mo- uh, all our book profits and everything we do, most of what we do goes to our uh, charitable organization, Healthy Minds Initiative, to raise awareness about brain health. Alzheimer's, dementia, strokes, and other brain diseases. Uh, so it's a it's a it's an important battle, and we need you to follow us. Please, you know, contact us. Tell us what you want us to talk about. Tell us how we can reach your communities. How we can f- help you. We don't want anything. We want to help. So that's that's the battle that we're in. So uh, got a little um, um, emotional there, but dementia is is the tsunami that we have to face right and the numbers are very scary it is they are right now 5.8 million people in the united states live with this disease every 64 seconds somebody is diagnosed with alzheimer's disease and you always say that that's an understatement it is because when you go to certain communities you see that the, the, the individuals that have developed alzheimer's they're never reported they're, they take care of the, um, them in their own home and they just let them you know, live uh, quiet lives and they never even visit, visit a doctor. So this is an understated because there's not awareness. And, and the consequences then are far reaching because if you don't take care of the disease, not, not that you can take care of it at that point. In fact, we don't, we, we don't say that you can reverse Alzheimer's once it's fulminant, once it's fully on board. Some people make that claim because it's a business deal. For us, we know you can't. You can slow the disease at earlier stages of it, and, and at very, very early stage, you can even reverse it. 
but at mild cognitive impairment stage and, and before that, you can definitely reverse it. Right. And there's evidence for that, many of and, and uh, Aisha will go over the data uh, on that. So with that said, uh, the critical factor to address here is that this tsunami, that, that we have to become aware of it. First thing is awareness, the massive nature of it, and, and the appropriate you know, approach to it, the right funding for it, mm-hmm. the community involvement in it, family involvement in it, because that's where it happens. We right. say that what happens in the hospitals and clinics, which we deal with on a daily basis, is sick care. Yeah. It's important, it's necessary. But for a lot of chronic diseases, by then it's too late. Healthcare happens in your home, in your, in your faith communities, it happens in your, at your work, what you do, and in your, in your community centers and communities. That's critical that we actually make that transfer and, and that uh, move. Um, Alzheimer's is growing rapidly. These numbers are scary in themselves. Uh, It's the fastest growing epidemic in the West. Whereas we're surviving many diseases. We're still having some increases in diabetes and and some others. Uh, But mortality is going down in all of them. Right. We have been able to reduce mortality of heart disease, of stroke, um, uh, HIV. But for Alzheimer's disease, it has gone up by 145% in the last 15 years, and that number is just going to keep climbing. That just blows my mind, 145% increase in mortality. Correct. That's just amazing. And uh, there's a relationship with aging. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that if you get age, you, you, uh, if you get older, you're going to get the disease. It just means that you've accumulated more risk. Right. And, and by reducing that risk, you'll reduce your, your prob- probability of getting the disease. So w- after the age of 65, one in 10 individuals will, de- will develop Alzheimer's. And each decade thereafter, it doubles. Until at age 85, 50% of those at age 85 will have developed Alzheimer's. That's a scary number. Given that the fastest growing population in the West is those 65 and above, and even a faster group than that is 85 and above. Right. So and yeah. there's a gender disparity as well. So women are at a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease during their lifetime compared to men. And the numbers are 1 in 11 women versus 1 in 6 in men. The, the reverse, actually. Oh, that's right. And the numbers are 1 in 6 in women versus 1 in 11 in men. Correct, correct. And, and the reasons are many, multifold. And it's not just survival bias, meaning that the women live longer, therefore they have more risk for developing disease. No, it's many, many other factors. And, um, and, and, and please tell us if you're interested in about us talking about that subject matter, because we have a lot of data and we've worked in it. And, and I think it's an important concept because the caregivers of families are women. In fact, since two-thirds of women develop... Uh, two-thirds of dementia in the patients are women. Mm-hmm. At the same time, two-thirds of caregivers are women. Right. That's, that's remarkable. The funny thing is, in one of the conversations we had with a the, with the group, uh, I think we had a big talk, 500 people. Uh, Sophie usually comes with us. She's our daughter, the 12-year-old uh, daughter. Um, she was sitting in the audience and she heard this about the caregivers. And afterwards she said, Dad, you need to take me to a restaurant. I'm like, uh, why? It was very uh, assertive and, and almost demanding. I said, why? He said, Dad, 
you, you know, you know that Alex is not going to take care of you when you get older. You know who's going to take care of you. So I think it's time for you to start uh, paying forward. Me. Yeah, appreciating me more. So uh, very smart, smart daughter, uh, smart girl. So one in six women. So there, there are many, many factors that we have to take into consideration there. And and what another funny fact about that is partners. There's some evidence that when a husband has dementia of the same age, if the husband and wives are the same age, the wife has 600% greater risk of developing dementia as well. The same is true the other way as well. So obviously they're not genetically related. So what is it? It's lifestyle. Shared lifestyle, shared uh, use. You think you're eating differently. After 15 years of marriage, you're not. You're eating the same things. You're you're moving the same amount. You have the same, you kind of share stress responses. You, you, you know, many other factors that, 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 that deal with this. So, and then the, the, the cost, the overwhelming cost of this disease. It's devastating. Yeah, the second costliest disease is heart disease at 120 billion. Third costliest disease in America is uh, all cancers combined at nearly uh, 70 billion. Alzheimer's disease cost, direct cost, is 290 billion, and indirect cost, another 240 billion. And that's the financial cost. That doesn't take into account the fact that, that it devastates families. Families are torn apart. They're, they're financially overwhelmed because family members have to stay at home to take care of their loved one. And this number is expected to grow to anywhere between 1.3 to $2 trillion by 2050. That will by itself over, overwhelm the healthcare system and the system in general if we don't address it in a different way. And why am I saying that? Because we have failed. Right. The way we've done it, we have failed. A hundred percent failure. We have spent billions and billions of dollars. We have killed millions of poor right, mice uh, for experimental mo- models. We have used you know, different techniques focusing on one molecule here and there, and we have failed 100%. Right. We have no disease-modifying drug or reversal drug out there. And even pharmaceutical companies are withdrawing from this field altogether. Correct. Pfizer announced that they didn't want to be involved in Alzheimer's research at all because of this massive failure. And they're realizing that it's more than just focusing on molecules. Correct. And, and it's driven by the fact that, and the reason I'm saying driven, because this, this massive ship is not changing course. I mean, I can accept the saying that, you know, a massive cha- uh, ship needs longer time to change course but it's not changing course. It's the same myth, a pill for, 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 a drug, for a disease. It doesn't work, it hasn't worked, and it will not work. It's too complex. Uh, that's a myth, that, and, and the myth is that we can't reverse or, or we can't prevent Alzheimer's. We can prevent Alzheimer's, that's a myth. The second myth, and that myth is driven by the, the molecular model. Right. These two molecules that we knew for 100 years now, amyloid, which is a, a abnormal protein that's pro- produced in the brains of individuals with Alzheimer's and tau. The thing is that e- there are many people that have a lot of amyloid, but they don't necessarily develop Alzheimer's. And, and we've targeted these molecules over and over again. We, don't, we, we think they're involved, definitely. I mean, we would be blind to the science to, not, to say that they're not involved. But we think that for majority, there are downstream products or downstream uh, effects, meaning that a lot of things have happened prior and in, in prior years, a lot of other trauma that finally have accumulated uh, in enough amyloid and tau 
to cause problems. And that's why they say that um, for Alzheimer's disease, the pathological process that brings about memory disorders and cognitive impairment actually starts 20 years or more uh, before the manifestation of symptoms, which blows my mind, which means that if, hypothetically, if somebody is going to have some level of cognitive impairment at age 65, um, they should start worrying about themselves, not worrying about this, but they should start paying attention during midlife. Correct. And and that's what research continuously shows. Midlife risk factors can contribute significantly to um, cognitive impairment during older age. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and we hope that this will have the effect. Uh, it's an empowering message we're giving. Right. We're not saying that because you have these risk factors that that's it. Uh, you, you, know, uh, you can't do anything. In fact, the opposite. Because you know that it's risk related and risk lifestyle risk related, you can influence it early on and significantly, and not just avoid disease, but actually maintain and grow your cognitive capacity well into later life. And I think I think this is a good point to bring up the the conversation about reversal of Alzheimer's disease. I mean, there are a lot of people who talk about. Um, the fact that you know some doctors have been able to reverse Alzheimer's disease, and that's not true. We don't have any evidence of reversal of Alzheimer's. Once the process starts and it has advanced significantly, already a lot of brain cells have been damaged. Um, but you can slow down the progression of the disease, and you can't expand cognitive capacity at any stage. And so you can actually re- reverse the course before the full manifestation of the disease. That means that if you, it's obviously it's not a point in time, but if you've developed a diagnosis of Alzheimer's and you already have such degree of Alzheimer's where you can't remember, you know, uh, some family members, you can't drive anymore, you can't, at that point it's not reversible. But anything prior to that, there's evidence that one can significantly affect it. And if those people who are claiming that they've reversed fulminant Alzheimer's, if they could have even proven one case, don't you think they would have won the Nobel Peace Prize or, no, or Nobel Medicine Prize? <laughs> but uh, reality is there's no evidence for that. But, we, but what we're saying is big enough. If we can stop progression of the disease before it ever starts, or if we can reverse be right before the fulminant nature of the disease, we will have you know, curtailed one of the biggest disease tsunamis in history. And, and uh, there's this incredible statistics about the fact that if we are able to delay the onset of Alzheimer's disease by five years, the cost is going to be cut by half. That's, that's that, you know, that's 145 billion, actually more than that would if you take the direct, indirect cost as well. So let's talk about the second big myth, which is genetics. Mm. That is a genetic disease. That's a big one. Yeah, as if as if it's a magical thing that if you have the genetics, then 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 you're that's it. That's a you will get the disease. That's f- completely false for this disease and many other chronic cognitive diseases. There are diseases that are that have high penetrance or genetic diseases where the genes have high penetrance, meaning that the one gene, for example, in Huntington's disease or sickle cell and others, this one abnormal gene drives the disease. You will get it no matter what, especially Huntington's. If you, if you have the disease, the genes and you have the certain number of replications of the product of that gene, you'll get it. There's nothing you can do. But for majority of chronic diseases of aging, including Alzheimer's, it's not one gene, it's polygenetic. That 
and and those genes have to do with lifestyle and we will get to that in uh, in a second the, when we talk about the new technology that has made it available to us that the genes involved in alzheimer's about 4 of them 40 of them uh, there will be more you know more being will be made evident but at this point we know about 40 of them and then the kind of genes that actually you know have 100% penetrance and and make it 100% certain that you will get the disease are presenilin 1, presenilin 2 and the APP. That means if you have these genes you'll get the disease in your lifetime. APP no matter what. stands for amyloid precursor protein and that's the protein that is uh, relevant in down syndrome cases, Correct. right? Correct. It's on chromosome two, 21 and for those who know uh, in down syndrome uh, that chromosome is uh, uh, triple you have three of them instead of two of them so there's an excess of app and then uh, they if they live long enough in their 50s they all get the disease but um so between presenilin 1 which is the most prevalent one and presenilin 2 and app guess what percentage of alzheimer's is driven by these three genes three percent that means three percent of alzheimer's driven by a high penetration a very strongly genetic model of the disease. What about the rest? Well, the second highest prevalence or, or penetrance gene is APOE. And there's three, several kinds, but APOE2, APOE3, and APOE4. If you get the APOE2 variety, you are blessed. You are, you have, you've been lucky. You've gotten the, uh, um, uh, the award uh, because you're protected. APOE3, that's a wash, and APOE4, you have higher risk. If you have one gene from one parent, your risk is four times higher. And if you have two genes, your risk is 12 to 15 times higher. So what does that mean? That if you have two genes, you're going to get the, the, you know, Alzheimer's no matter what? Nope. In fact, there's that 50% of them never get the disease. Mm-hmm. And it's a risk gene. So most of these, in fact, the thing that's repeated in, in many journals is that people have to understand that these genes are risk genes, meaning that they increase your risk, but they're not deterministic genes, meaning that if you have them, it's determined that you will get the disease. What about the rest of the genes? You know, 30 some odd genes. What, what about them? They have lower penetrance. They, they have a, less of a relationship with outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and meaning that if you have them, you have a higher risk, but but not that, that much higher, and the combination of them can, can increase your risk. What are those genes? Those genes are genes that have to do with your body's response to inflammation, to glucose regulation, to uh, uh, lipid, and also, most importantly, uh, disposal, waste disposal. So what, what does that mean? That means that if you have a waste disposal gene that's poor, if you have a lot of waste in your body, meaning that you kind of eat the kind of food that creates a lot of oxidation and you know, uh, and inflammation, or you live a life that doesn't get rid of that waste, you get rid of, then you're going to be easily un- uh, overcome by 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 by, the, by that kind of trauma. If you have uh, immune problem uh, genes that have poor poor immune response, if you have inf- inflammation in your bo- in your body throughout life, that means that if you have ha- poor genes. Even slight bit of inflammation is going to become over, overwhelming to your system. And, and, but if you have good genes, you know, everybody at every talk we go, somebody says, oh, my uncle smoked and, uh, you know, uh, two drank, packs a day and drank a, a bottle of vodka day. every day and, and you know, lived whatever. Lived to his 90s. Uh, yeah, he lived to his 90s. Well, your uncle is an exception. There right. is a bell curve. I mean, people have to recognize the bell curve. 
public health and data, public population data is very clear. You've, you drink a bottle of vodka a day, you will not live to 90. Your uncle might have, but the rest of us will not. That's that's the, the bell curve of, of statistics. And public health is not built on exceptions. Exactly. It's it's we have to go by general. That's why I'm I'm uh, although we have lots of friends and we 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 know about anecdotes and personal experiences. Uh, all sides have their personal experiences. Whether it's even let's just take nutrition. Keto people have their uh, uh, personal experience cases that that, that become famous. And uh, the the whole keto, um, sorry, the uh, coconut oil thing was on a case of one. And on plant based side, there are cases. Well, those are great. Those are good models to build on and do further research. But research means comprehensive, large scale, perspective meaning going forward data that's repeated by others and it's not funded by certain industries. And it's also validated in different populations. Different populations. And then you also have population data that's long-term because as much as people talk about, you know, uh, um, uh, clinical trials and uh, RCT, you can't do long-term clinical trials, uh, double-blinded, randomized clinical trials. They they are only good for short term. Long term is also important. So you have to take this whole comprehensive approach. Sorry, I got on a tangent, but so no, I think that was quite relevant yeah. because we live at a day and age where people get most of their health information from Instagram, and Correct. you get these crazy posts which says, "Just listen to your body. Just just do what feels right for you." No, you know, chocolate might feel right for a second or two, yeah. but. That's not the right thing. Well, not chocolate. I, I, I'm going to say sugar. You're so nice. You know? Somebody yeah. would say cocaine. You know. Never, <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Drugs yeah. might feel good, but is it good for you long term? No. No. Uh, it, it helped me lose weight. Well, there are other ways to lose weight as well. You know, you cut off an arm, you've lost weight. Take some uh, heroin, you'll lose weight. You know, massive de- uh, uncontrolled depression, you'll lose weight. But what's the long term? So, so it's the, the the bigger picture. So that that has to be taken, and we we will talk about the science and the comprehensive approach of science, uh, and and also not the cult of personality. Not even us. It's not about us. It's about if our data is close to proximal to truth in science, especially nutrition and lifestyle science. You're never going to have absolute truth. You're going to have proximity, and if there's enough data and there's enough strong correlation from multiple domains, that's good enough. We've stopped smoking as a population, not because we had causal data on smoking, but we had enough correlational data that that showed us that. So with that said, the gene picture is definitely evident, is related to lifestyle. The genetics give you risk, and the risk is related to those genes that deal with your response to factors. Mm -hmm. Um, So, in the last um, uh, Alzheimer's Association uh, meeting, uh, about 5,000 neurologists and dementia specialists, the main talk was about the fact that lifestyle can prevent Alzheimer's, which was amazing. We were jumping up and down. Which is quite rare. You never see neurologists and scientists standing up and giving standing ovation about statements. But that's exactly what happened at the plenary session. The most important topic was lifestyle matters and lifestyle reduces the risk of Alzheimer's disease. By 60%. They're still wrong. They're coming climbing every year. 60% for <laughs> first a of all, First of all, you know, many, many years ago, it was, there's no relationship. Yes. Then we heard that there may be some association. Then, then 30%. Then, yeah, the next year it was, oh, it reduces uh, Alzheimer's by 30%. And then this year it was 60%. Correct. And we think that with 
optimal lifestyle and and long-term comprehensive approach, you can reduce it by 90%. But again, it's not about Alzheimer's. It's about maintaining cognitive health because if you don't do those things, even if you don't develop dementia, we see this. The cognitive decline starts in your 20s and 30s. You might not be aware of it, but it does. And, 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 and you see glimpses of that iceberg when you forget names, forget, we all do, but, but maintaining that and expanding that with certain techniques, not just nutrition, but certain techniques that we talk about comprehensively is critical because it has to do with living a unforgettable, vibrant life. And I'm thrilled that we have data now that supports the importance of a healthy lifestyle and dementia prevention. Um, and at the Alzheimer's Association, the talk was just that, that lifestyle can actually reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease by 60%. That's, that's remarkable. We, when we first saw that, we, we heard that. Uh, I think we jumped, uh, as, as scientists, we usually don't do that, uh, you know, in the middle of a major meeting. Uh, just There's jump no up. standing ovation in no, scientific no, no, conferences. I mean, but, but 60%, this, I mean, just a few years ago, the resistance that we felt that, yes. uh, uh, that this is not, in fact, even some of the major TV shows, right? Uh, you know, uh, what is it, um, um, uh, the ABC more, they, they were like, oh, lifestyle cannot influence Alzheimer's risk. And, and we said, it does, the data is there. So now 60%, but we think they're actually wrong because the models that they're using, and we'll actually share these studies with you, their idea of optimal lifestyle is not optimal. It's suboptimal. Right. So even with suboptimal lifestyle, they still got 60%. Right. That's exactly. amazing. Yes. So what we talk about and in our book and, 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 and in our talks is optimal lifestyle is a little more work. So if you want to avoid Alzheimer's 90%, that means you have to start earlier. Right. I mean, I would like you to start from birth, but you have no control over that. That's right. I want you to start as early as possible and full force. I don't mean to do it overnight but at least work towards that optimal and get there. Because that optimal is not only going to avoid Alzheimer's, 90%, but maintain cognitive health. I mean, we fight for all these other things, but at the end of the day, you are your brain. And, and there's different levels of awareness. And to maintain that and grow that and become more and become more aware, more, more resilient, more, more, you know, live more in your mind. Right. That's what we want. And you can achieve that. And this is not a late night talk show. By the way, we're not selling anything. It's about something that you can do in your own home and life. And we'll get into that. That's perfect. Um, you know, when we talk about genes, you and I are always um, asked this question of whether someone has to find out what their genetic pattern is. You know, now everybody can take a little swab from their mouth and, you know, send that swab for analysis to find out whether they have genes for Alzheimer's disease, what would you say to them? Uh, so, so you and I both have grandparents. Uh, in fact, we have uh, uh, and, uh, the genetic risk is there in our right, family. Right. Not, you have two grandparents. I had two grandparents with dementia. And uh, so uh, up to now, we are living a great life. Uh, we are both active in the clinic. And, and what's the joke? The joke is that Dr. Sherzai is a preeminent neurologist, memory specialist, but he loses more things than anybody else. <laughs> well, up to now, maybe I'm being delusional, but up to now, I'm just ascribing it to just being busy. But imagine, but there's some truth in what I'm about to say. Let's say, imagine I find out that I have one of the alleles, APOE4, mm -hmm. one, one of them. So it increases my risk four times. 
what happens then the next time I forget where I've put my coat? Where You're going to be pen? super anxious. Anxiety. Yeah. By the way, anxiety is one of the factors that will actually increase your risk. Oh, definitely. So every time I forget something, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And since we don't have anything to, that we can do as far as the genes, then why even worry about the genes? But there are things you can do to reduce your risk of those genes. And that's what we'll be talking about now. So instead of looking at your genes, which you can't do anything about anyway, let's talk about what you can do to get yourself to that you know, reduction of 90% risk. So basically, live as if you have the risk. Live as live if you have the risk. The healthiest yeah. version of your life as possible. Absolutely. And it's not even for avo avoiding Alzheimer's. For us, we don't care. Right. Uh, well, we do care, but we care about something more than that living and expanding our cognitive capacity well into our you know later life and you know up to now everybody um in the community and um even in the scientific community uh, were under the impression that the brain was a black box that it you know f function in a completely different way and that the the normal function or physiology of the body didn't really affect it Correct. but it does i mean it, it, does. it has the same blood vessels it has it functions under the same um, uh, processes and mechanisms that uh, you know moves and functions every other system in the body i just noticed that you move your arm now too and and remember that thing that when you live together you develop same kind of risks <laughs> you you start eating the same you start moving we're moving the same too now we can uh, that's another risk that we've developed so i'm really excited <laughs> Absolutely. So no, that's so. We're talking about um, uh, the genetic risk. We'll we'll have a complete different section on genes and the brain. It's incredibly um, a fast moving field, uh, and it's not just about identifying the different genes and different diseases, but in the next few years, how we can influence the genes directly or the epigenetics of it through specific lifestyle factors. We'll talk about that in a separate talk. That is such an exciting field that is coming up. And, you know, that's, that's the idea of precision medicine, isn't it? Yes. Precision medicine is uh, going to be here soon. It's not here as much as some people want to tell you because they want to sell you things with these biohacking this and biohacking that, uh, especially if it's an engineer biohacking your body. <laughs> we'll get into But it's it's about what, we'll, what we will be able to do more scientifically and specifically, and, right. and we'll talk about that. It's an interesting concept, but you really can't hack your way to a healthier life. Correct. So um, having said that, now we talk about the fact that um, uh, what is the cause of majority of these diseases? Because we want to live a vibrant life. So what, what can we do? What are the factors that influence brain aging? Mm -hmm. There are four major factors that influence not just brain aging, but also aging in general. It's inflammation, oxidation, lipid dysregulation or fat dysregulation, and energy dysregulation or glucose dysregulation as one form. So... That usually is the same for most body systems, uh, but especially for the brain, these four processes at, the, at, at least lead the, the pathology pro pathologic process. So what can you b do about these things? Oxidation, lipid dysregulation, and all these things, uh, these factors. Well, what affects lipid dysregulation? What affects fat dysregulation? What affects your energy dysregulation? Oxidation, inflammation. Well, lifestyle stuff. Right. We're talking about Nutrition affects them. Exercise affects them profoundly. Stress, and we'll have a session on stress and how it completely changes your body's infrastructure and your neurotransmitter system in your brain. Sleep, 
the most important eight hours of your day is your sleep. Instead of spending that money in some spa, spend it in your bedroom. I promise you it's the most effective of a dollar you'll be spending, the money that you'll be spending is in creating a proper sleep environment. And then last one is optimizing mental activity, which doesn't affect these processes, but it has its own capacity to expand those connections. We'll get to that that, uh, as well. So with that, we've come up with this acronym, NEURO, a little self-serving, but but that's okay. Yeah, well, we're neurologists. Neurologists, yes. So uh, N for nutrition, E for exercise, U for unwind, R for restorative sleep, and O for optimizing uh, cognitive and social activity. Now, unwind means stress management, not just stress reduction. Actually, here's, I'll, I'll give a clue. Most important part of unwind is increasing good stress. And sleep or our restorative sleep doesn't mean just being knocked out with medicine. You have to get deep levels of sleep and you have to go through the cycles of sleep for multiple you know, uh, cycles at least seven to eight hours. And we'll talk about what that means and what you need to do and, and, and all of that factors. And optimizing mental activity doesn't have anything to do with Sudoku. I'll just leave it at that. It's, mu- it's much more than that, but, but I, I'll tell you, none of those require you to go to anybody where they find some holes and p- fill it with some vitamins or some biohacking or buying their juice. It, it, it has to do with your house, your rooms, your living space and your work and your uh, community. And uh, that's where our passion is. And we'll, when we get to the community part, all our funds that we uh, uh, from the book go to uh, our Healthy Minds Initiative, which is sole purpose is to do research and also to raise awareness about brain health. Um, by the way, fairly soon we'll have one of the top doctors on sleep um, has written a best-selling book on uh, on on sleep and and another one on uh, stress management. Uh, so don't miss those. Now, having said that, let's start with the big one. Uh, Aisha, who's an expert, uh, he's a preventive doctor and even then worked on nutrition and then uh, a neurology worked on nutrition and then fellowship on nutrition and then did culinary. I went to culinary school. This is her love, passion and everything else. Uh, how could it not be? I mean, nutrition yeah. is pro- the most important um, environmental exposure. Absolutely. I mean, it's something that we put in our bodies three or four times a day and it determines um, the environment for the brain. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of food war and nutrition war going on. Um, But I think when you look at experts in the field, um, you know, there is is a great degree of agreement in the fact that, you know, eating uh, whole foods, which are unprocessed and plant-based, uh, seems to be the best food for the brain yeah. um, because you get uh, all of your nutrients, all of your you know, multivitamins from plants. Correct. Um, this can be with and without uh, oil, especially olive oil. It could be with and without some salt. But the most important thing to understand is that eating a whole food, mostly plant-based diet is the best diet for the brain. I mean, even even the paleo and keto people will agree that a plant-centered life is 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 healthy. Um, yeah, they might say that you know you reduce the carbs, but but plant-centered. So we'll give them that, and we'll agree with them on that. But we believe that plant whole food. Uh, oh, and also everybody agrees that unprocessed is good. Um, uh, there are very few people that disagree with that, except the, this new movement, which is the carnivore movement. I don't get this, that. Yeah, no, these are people that just say, "I'm just going to resist." 
because I don't want to give up the past and I'm going to create arguments for it. Uh, and, and people like Jordan Peterson who just are sophists and just want to say anything and have good language that, that can make anything sound good, they'll even make an argument for that. We're not here to make those kind of arguments. We're here to let science, to the best of its ability, and we don't ask for perfection, give us you know, direction and lead. Um, and, and when it comes to it, non-processed, we all agree. And plant-centered, we all agree. The two of us say that the, the, the data, not just the two of us, there's many out there with um, Colin Campbell and, 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 and Dr. Esselstyn and others that say that a whole food plant-based uh, meaning that all of it is plant-based, is the most optimal diet. And we agree with that. And, and, and I shall give you the, some of the data, although there's, there's not enough time this year for us to go through all the data that's out there. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think um, it has been established over and over again. And this is not something that is new. We have uh, profound data going back 80 years from now showing that you know a plant-based diet prevents diseases like Alzheimer's disease, it prevents diseases like stroke, Parkinson's disease, um, and other dementias as well. So just focusing on the brain, we're not even going into you know, uh, heart disease and cancers. There's even more data supporting um, uh, the importance of a plant-based diet or a vegetarian diet in prevention of those diseases. Healthy vegetarian diet. Correct, yeah. of course, yes, yeah. um, an unprocessed vegetarian diet. And, you know, speaking of Vegan. vegetarianism, um, we know that the Adventist Health Study has been able to show that and validate that concept in that population. It's a great population to study because they have vegetarians and non-vegetarians, so the comparison of the two is possible. And they've shown that, you know, consumption of sources of saturated fats as meat, which include poultry and fish as well, you know, increased the risk of uh, dementia in that population. So those who ate meat had twice the risk of developing Alzheimer's compared to those who were vegetarians. And the same same thing you see in other populations as well, you know, like the Chicago Health and Aging Project. And this was a longitudinal study, so people were followed for a long time, and about 2,500 older adults were followed, and they found out that those who consumed higher amounts of saturated fats and trans fats, which are, you know, the, the, the processed fats, um, had a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And the same thing was found in the Kaiser Permanente studies, you know, close to 10,000 individuals, um, and their cholesterol levels were checked. And higher cholesterol during midlife um, had 57% higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And even in those who had moderately high cholesterol levels during midlife, midlife their risk went up by 23%. Correct. And so, so you know, you see the same thing in women's health study. You see that in the Northern Manhattan study in New York. People who eat a plant-based diet have better cognitive health and lower risk of developing these diseases. Correct. And in and, and my own clinic, our clinic, I saw 3,000 people for a period of time where we actually collected data. This is in Loma Linda, California, where the 50% of population roughly is vegetarian. So by law of numbers, you would expect 50% of my clinic to have been vegetarian. And, and so again, this is anecdotal data. Although it's an anecdote of 3,000. Remember, the whole anecdote, the whole movement of uh, coconut oil was based on an anecdote of one. Uh, but even though I have 3,000 cases, well-documented, that showed that uh, out of the 3,000 individuals that had dementia, 
in a population where 50% are vegetarians. And, and, and our clinic was one of the major clinics, or probably the only right, major right. clinic. Uh, we got 19 people who are vegetarians. Mm. And majority of those had dementia as a result of vascular factors such as arrhythmia, where clots are thrown, which you know things of that nature. And as far as whole food plant-based, I can't even count the number. I mean, we're talking about within one hand, four people that had um, a whole food plant-based. This, these numbers are remarkable. This speaks to the power, I mean, anecdotal, but the power of, of uh, whole food plant-based. And then when you look at the Advanced Health study we did, where we looked at 500 people and they were well-studied with all the other factors, and look at um, uh, um, uh, whole food plant-based vegan, uh, lacto-ovo vegetarians, pescatarians and omnivores, the graph was straight up, meaning that the, uh, the whole food plant-based did much better than, uh, the vegetarians did much better than the pescatarians, which did much better than omnivores. Mm-hmm. The data was consistent. And, and this has been shown over and over again in populations, in, in the blue zones, same thing. The, Dan uh, actually looked at the blue zones. Dan Buechner. Dan yeah. And in, in one of the blue zones, actually, they were, the number, they couldn't even see any dementia patients in, in, the, in, in the given population, which was a, mainly a plant-centered population. Agreed, agreed. Now, you know, the, the diet that has been studied extensively when it comes to um, brain health and heart health or the dietary pattern is the Mediterranean diet. Um, you know, you see it everywhere, all over the place, you know, uh, on the news and on the TV. And people will always wonder what that essentially means. And I think there's been a misconception of what Mediterranean diet means. People think it's cheese and, you know, pasta and wine. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to look into it. And, you know, in the California teacher study, um, we looked at the definition of Mediterranean diet and, you know, parse it out to, to see how it was essentially defined. And when you look at the Mediterranean diet score construct, um, individuals who adhere to a Mediterranean diet essentially get a high score if they eat vegetables, fruits, whole grains, nuts and seeds, legumes, and sources of omega-3 fatty acids. And that sounds like, you know, a whole food plant-based diet. Correct. Now, obviously, you know, fish is usually thrown in there as a source of omega-3 fatty acids. But if you can get that from plants, you get the same high score. And a low score is given when people consume meat and poultry and dairy. Correct. And in that population, <clears throat> we, we looked at Mediterranean dietary pattern and stroke. And the risk of stroke went down to 44% just by eating a plant-based Mediterranean diet, not even looking at, you know, not obviously adjusting for things like exercise and hormones and other lifestyle factors that can lead to a lower stroke risk, which was amazing. I agree. I, I, and so I think the reason that everybody's talking about Mediterranean, even recently, they said the healthiest diet was Mediterranean and because it's a sexy concept. Yeah, it is. You know, Mediterranean, you know, everybody thinks about the islands and, you know, traveling and, and you know, having their, um, um, the, the whole vacation and or that, that whole environment. But it has nothing to do with, with because we're, when you talk about Mediterranean and, and we're applying it to so many different populations, they're not Mediterranean. Many of those communities that, that they're being tested for Mediterranean diet are not Mediterranean. It has to do with the plant-based component of their food. And yet they're still calling it Mediterranean. And Dan Butner in his books, uh, in his books, the, the, the Blue Zones books, he has defined what 
those kind of populations and communities actually eat. You know, when you when you look at his description of the Icarian diet or the Sardinian diet, it's basically, you know, some greens and lots and lots of beans. Correct. And whole foods. Um, the, you know, people ask about olive oil and, um, you know, where does that You're come gonna in? You're going to go there, aren't you? I have to. It's so funny for 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 other people. There are other areas of controversy. For in our world, olive oil is a world of controversy. And I think it's important because it you know the work of Dr. Esselstyn um, has shown that you know when you go into a whole food, plant based, no oil diet, you're able to reverse coronary artery disease. And his work is incredibly important. The same thing Dean Ornish showed. But when it comes to studies, um, and you and I have talked about this many times, you know. Olive oil stands out because that dietary pattern has always been compared to the standard American diet, which is junk. Yes. You know, uh, so you have to ask yourself, in comparison to what is olive oil better? And it's compared to the standard American <clears throat> diet. Uh, but but uh, so the, the one thing that I want to say here is that um, given that we live in a, and I fully agree, if somebody has coronary artery disease or are highly motivated and want to completely avoid disease in the first place. And we're talking about disease. We're talking about not just the heart. Remember, the most vascular organ in the body is the brain. 400 miles of vessels. And and for people who say, oh, the brain is made of fat, so therefore it needs fat, they have no idea that in order for that fat to get to the brain, which actually doesn't need, creates lots of fat and gets lots of fat from the body itself, it has to go through those 400 miles of vessels. Guess what's going to get clogged? Those vessels. Uh, so we, we will talk about that, 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 that logical fallacy that's created in the mind of the public in order to uh, uh, push an agenda. It's, it's not the fat. So the, you know, we agree that for, for most that, that are motivated, stay away from fat in general. Yes, um, uh, poly and monosaturated fats are better than uh, trans fats, but they're still not. They create inflammation. And of the fats, the omega DHAs are good and they're needed and you can get it in many kinds of foods such as chia and uh, flaxseed and others and mm-hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that. But at the population level, in a country or in a world now, right, right. because of the westernization and uh, the affluence paradox that's af- ha- changing China and Japan and India towards unhealthy diets, westernized diets, or the standard American diet, sad diet, it's, it's, we have to understand that if we want to make a dent in that tsunami of bad health, and with all this noise, it's almost like as if keto has taken over because it's convenient and people want to know that they can eat their bacon, confirmation bias. We have to create a system that people can actually apply and change behavior slowly, somewhat painlessly, but, and, and, and that's understandable. So with that in mind, we usually say the whole food plant base is the optimal that's the gold standard you're going to go for. Right. But if you, you know, for given populations and communities, that your next step is your next step, meaning that if you have sugar in your diet that's high amounts, start reducing that in a quantitative way. If you have fat in your diet, start reducing that in a quantitative way. If you have meat in your diet, start reducing that in, in a quantitative way. Start with processed meat and then go down the list. If it's cheese, start replacing that. Don't feel deprived. Do it in a way where you're actually replacing things with, with you know, as for taking your taste into consideration, taking your... So if we truly want to do something at the public health level, at the great greater national and international level, we really have to take behavior of populations into consideration and make it convenient. 
Otherwise, you know, systems and diets that come and go. And it's the re- recreation of the same thing because people want to maintain their bacon, which is killing people. It's, it, we are going to lose to it because they will just come up with the next you know, the argument that, that, that just flips the previous argument a little here and a little there. And now the bad thing is they're actually even involved in bad science. So we're, we're at a, we really have to approach it in a public health way. And to say that the optimal is whole food plant-based, but at population levels, we got to stop. Uh, we, we go for that, but one step at a time. Each person take where their strength is, where they can make the difference and make a change. Right. That's the optimal for each individual. Beautifully stated. What are your thoughts about supplements? Ah, uh, we, can, we will actually talk about all the supplements in a different talk, but... Um, the, the, even uh, when we published the book two years ago, we talked about some of the supplements being good and so on and so forth. The data is coming back that even the, the ones that you thought that we needed, B12 and omega-3 DHA, if you get it in a food form, it's much better. Mm-hmm. And for those who think that you can't get those in a whole food plant-based, they're wrong. In fact, the latest data came back that the people that were in a whole food plant-based diet got it better than other populations because they were more aware that you can get your uh, omega and DHA in a, in a very good proportion, meaning three to four to one omega to omega six, omega three to omega six from chia and flaxseed. And you just throw some of that on your food and there it is. That's your vitamin in a synergistic way. We're going to have a fight in there as well because people, even though they say they don't like pills, they like pills because it's easier. Give me the blue pill or the red pill and shut up and put some butter in my coffee and shut up. It's not that easy. It's complex. It's, it's lifestyle. It's whole food. It's the synergy of food. It's the symphony of food working together. Right. And you don't have to pay, pay a penny to anybody except the grocer. Or maybe your own backyard. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. Let's talk about exercise. Um, exercise is good. It is good. It is. I think we could probably just end over end here there. and say... And there's a, a funny thing is there's no controversy there. <laughs> Nobody's coming out with this, you know, no exercise, let's call it, you know, paleo no exercise, where you sit and you let the bears come to you and or the, the, the you know... The, Agreed. Yeah. No fight there. No fight there. But there are certain things about exercise that are incredibly interesting when it yes. comes to brain health, which is leg strength. Leg strength that seems to be associated with brain strength. If I had... My, my control over things. If I was Secretary of Health and Human Services, I would have, uh, I would invest in uh, recumbent bikes or at least, you know, uh, foot pedal exercisers that are connected to every television so that TV is not working unless they're pedaling. I'm not sure if people are going to vote for you. No, for I'm going to, well, it's not a voting position, but I'm not going get, <laughs> to even get hired. I'll probably get fired the next day, but it's so <laughs> critical. Your leg strength is connected to your brain health. Not only that, as you get older, the number one factor that determines longevity and resilience is leg strength. Right. The number one factor that determines you don't fall is leg strength. Then your biggest pump in your body is not your heart, it's your legs. So I don't mean to do squats. I'm not a big fan of squats because of its effect on your back and your knees, but mm-hmm. don't get offended for those who are doing it. I'm, I'm fine. But, you know, leg strength through bicycling, leg strength through mini squats, leg strength through sitting as exercises for quads and, and hamstrings where you're not actually putting a lot, that's incredibly valuable. Or just walking a brisk walk. Right. That's, that's amazing. So that's one factor that's important. The second factor is when we know Aerobic exercise, about 150 minutes a, a week. That number, I, I, it's arbitrary. You can do more. That's fine. Um, uh, so 150 minutes a week. 
and and it's got to be brisk. You got to get tired. And you know, every time we we have a clinic, somebody says, "Oh, I'm okay with exercising. I walk every day, and I walk the neighborhood, right. and I do gardening." And we say, "That's not exercise. That's meditation. You got to get t- tired. You got to sweat. You really got to sweat." So that's that's what's needed, and and the relationship there is incredible. Right. Yeah, twenty minutes of brisk walk, Harvard study. Uh, people who've done it for many years. They reduced their risk by more than forty-five percent. Yeah, just a brisk walk. Forty percent. Forty percent. Forty percent lower risk of Alzheimer's disease. So, because for us everything is about habit, I say if you haven't been exercising, don't do you know don't just go out and do twenty minutes or thirty minutes. Build a habit and start with five minutes of brisk walk and do it for several weeks so it becomes a habit. Right. Then the following week, after that, after several, after six weeks. Increase it to seven minutes and on and on. You didn't get here to the point of, uh, you know, not exercising overnight. Don't get out of it overnight. Build habits. And, you know, uh, one of the most fascinating studies that I read was in a population of people who had mild cognitive impairment. Um, They were able to reverse their cognitive impairment with a structured exercise program. You know, they were exposed to resistance training and they exercised two to three times a week for six months. And 47% of them were able to reverse their cognitive impairment. Isn't that amazing? They basically reversed their cognitive impairment. That's insane. This is a huge study, a well, you know, documented. Um, um, and 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 well-designed study that showed that you can reverse cognitive impairment. Right, and they were able to maintain those scores for 18 months, even though they had been diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. And get this, greater leg strength was extremely effective in improving cognition. So this this paper was published in 2016, and that was amazing. That's wonderful. No, no, and and then the third thing is move all day. In fact, the one thing about the blue zones is that people moved all day. Right. Sedentary behavior essentially nullifies the effect of any exercise on the brain. It does. So you just got to keep moving. Correct. So so those are the three factors. We just gave you a gold mine. Just exercise by itself reduces your risk of Alzheimer's by more than 50% if you do all of those things. So so start exercising. Now the next thing is stress. Mm-hmm. Again, as I'll say that we'll talk about each of these. We need more than an hour for each of these alone because it's not just about us throwing information at you. It's about us trying to empower you. So stress is not about stress reduction. It's about you know good stress and bad stress. So, so stress management and stress perception is incredibly important. It is. It, it does come to perception and definition. So good stress is the kind of stress that's driven by your purpose, has a timeline, you have a way to succeed, has direction, bad stresses, all of those in reverse. You have no control, it's not driven by your purpose, there's no timeline and you don't know where it's gonna end or start and just keeps going and on and on. And although it's processed in the same place in the brain, and especially the, uh, the limbic system of the brain, but it's defined in the brain as well, meaning that if it's perceived as bad stress, different information goes to your hypothalamus which then sends different information to your pituitary. And uh, even before going there, your neurotransmitters in the rest of the brain are affected by that interpretation. And the, the hormones that are released from your pituitary are completely different from those that are released when you actually have good stress. Right. For the good stress, you have oxytocin going up, uh, um, uh, uh, cortisol and adrenaline going down. And, and and the other uh, hormones, growth hormone, insulin releasing factor, all these are stabilized. 
For bad stress, it's the opposite way. Right. Cortisol goes up, you know, um, uh, uh, your thyroid hormones are uh, thrown awry, your, your glucose metabolism, everything is thrown awry. And that's just by stress. So one of the things we do, and we'll do this with you guys, on, uh, is an exercise, a whiteboard exercise. If there is one company that should sponsor Aisha and I, it should be a whiteboard company. <laughs> And I think we can't pay anything with that whiteboard company, uh, any of the, but, but. <laughs> a lot of people own whiteboards because of us. Yes, a lot of people have said that. So in that whiteboard, clearly, specifically, you know, the SMART goals, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound, relevant to, to your goal. Um, write your bad stresses in life and work on that a little bit because it's very, not that easy to say, oh, this is causing, write all of them and then good stresses, meaning things that you would wanna do that, that's within your capability and things that you're doing that you like. So your goal in life, above all, is to increase the good stress, the purpose-driven stresses and reduce the bad stress. Yeah. That's it. That's where everything starts and goes. It's in the middle of our acronym, it's the center of neuro, isn't it? It is. It was an accident. Yeah. I can take credit for it, but no. It was, uh, both Aisha and I were like, uh, that was an accident. But, but it is central. Right. So increase uh, the good stress. And that, that, so the first step is identify the stresses. Second, you make sure that, oh, second is something we throw off uh, on the side, which is um, forget about multitasking. There is so no such thing as multitasking. There's only doing multiple things badly <laughs> so uh, be be mindful right. be focused be present for that thing in front of you um, you can do multiple things but do each of them in their own silos in an organized way and that's because attention and focus is the gateway to memory you can improve your memory by paying attention to something how many times we hear that you know somebody goes from one room to another and they can't remember what they were there for that's because they never paid attention to the to the task at hand initially especially as we get older. One of the first areas of the brain that's affected as we get older is the focus centers. Physically, it actually starts shrinking. So yeah. we can actually affect that and increase its capacity and size. So it's by uh, specific techniques, meditation, mindfulness are some of them. And we'll talk about what that means neurologically to us. Not just somebody you know, telling you, oh, go meditate and here's your mantra, which is fine. I'm okay with all of that. But what is the neurological basis of all of right. that? So um, um, manage the stresses and then do the mindfulness and meditation techniques at least twice a day and slowly build. By the way, if you think you can't meditate because you can't focus, well, that's the whole point. Every time you lose focus and come back to focus, you're actually building that process. Right. So don't worry about the fact that you can't focus. Well, that's why you're there. If you can focus for six seconds on your breath and, 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 and take out all the noise, that's great. Next week, you're gonna to go to seven seconds and then eight seconds and, uh, and, and go on from there. So focus. So the next thing uh, after stress is sleep. Right, sleep. So, yeah, so sleep is incredibly important. Like you said, it's probably the most important time of the day. And we're sacrificing our safety and our um, cognition and activities to just shutting down and and going to sleep because that is the time that the brain rejuvenates itself that is the time for repair and um, people don't really give it much importance especially in the u.s yes i was reading an article that uh, we're one of the most sleep deprived countries in the world 
India seemed to be the first on top when it came to sleep quality. Ah, But, that's good. But um, we now know that when we sleep, there are certain cells called the microglia, which are the janitor cells of the brain. They get activated. And their job is to go around and clean up the garbage uh, material or the broken parts of the brain that have been active and that have to be removed. So microglia actually go and gather all of that and get rid of it. But when we are sleep deprived, these microglia go nuts. And instead of getting rid of the garbage material, they started eating away at the healthier part of the brain. And that's why it's assumed that when people are sleep deprived or they have some sort of sleep disorder, the brain actually shrinks yes. in size, especially the hippocampi, which are the areas of the brain that are responsible for encoding memory. Correct. And the second function of, the, of sleep is um, uh, memory consolidation which means uh, they've done studies that people who've had poor sleep before a test, they did bad. And, and, or if they had to memorize something and they didn't get sleep afterwards, they didn't memorize. Right. So both pre-sleep and post, uh, sorry, pre-memorization and post-memorization sleep is critical. Right. And by 40% reduction in cognitive capacity. Amazing. With one night's poor sleep. Amazing. That's remarkable. Yeah. And, and by the way, we will have a world-renowned sleep doctor that will be talking with us uh, fairly soon as well. So getting seven to eight hours of sleep a night is incredibly important. Yes. Anything less and you're putting yourself at risk and anything more, your risk actually goes up too, right? Absolutely. So more than nine hours, why would that be bad? The reason we're thinking is because, I mean, seven to eight hours of deep sleep, and, I, and we'll talk about deep sleep at another time, is critical. Uh, and and if you uh, if that seven or eight hours is not satisfying you and you need more sleep and you need naps, something's wrong. Right. That means during those seven or eight hours, something is interfering with deep sleep. So that must be addressed. Could it be biological? Could it be thyroid? Could it be some deficiency? Could it be sleep apnea or some other thing? So we will we'll, uh, we'll address those issues, but sleep should be a high priority in your life both as far as creating a good sleep environment and, and sleep hygiene, and also addressing any f problems with sleep, not just with medication, but why are you having this problem in the first place? Right, and that's why we did not call it just sleep in the book. We we titled it as restorative sleep because it's a very different concept. Yeah, that's where your restoration takes place. That's your spa. Right. Your bedroom should be your ultimate spa. So last but not least is optimize, meaning that optimize your mental activity. You remember those connections? When you have each neuron has two connections, that's okay, that's functioning, but to optimize means 30,000 connections. That's your brain on nitro. That, no, that nitro doesn't even come close <laughs> to ex expressing what I that like means. I like to picture it that way. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing what we can do with this brain. And optimize means not just playing Sudoku and things of that nature. I'm just joking. Those are fine. Those are great. But it has to be more complex. We just did a meta-analysis recently uh, looking at multiple data on cognition and, and, and mild cognitive impairment and what kind of activities. Complexity, complexity, complexity. Meaning activities, real life activities that activate multiple domains of your brain. What does that mean? Playing a new musical instrument, learning a new language, traveling and challenging yourself, managing a team, volunteering, you know, playing cards with friends, yeah. 
that's that's mental activity. So those sound more like social activities with other individuals. Well, it could be you know by yourself, but if it's if there are other individuals involved, that's even better because we are social beings. That puts in an emotional com- component to it. So challenge, uh, so complexity, and then challenge means you could be doing you know let's say that you learn a song on on guitar, um, um, let's say one uh, you know Stairway to Heaven and. You just keep playing that for 20 years. I think I'm talking about myself here. <laughs> Challenge means stop by just keep doing the same thing. You're not making those neurons push themselves. It's right. not, it's like a bicep curl. It's, it only grows if you just keep doing the 10 pounds that initially was stressful. You're not going to grow it anymore. You have to go to 15 pounds and then 20 pounds and 30 pounds. Well, stop it there. But, but, but keep pushing those neurons to the next level. And who can do better than you? A computer can't do that yet, but you can do that. You can tell yourself, okay, I've learned four chords, now it's time for five chords, now it's time for another song, now it's time that I've learned you know, 20 words in French, now I'm, I have to learn 25 words. No, now I'm actually at the point where I can go and have a conversation. Challenge yourself, push yourself. Don't retire. As a friend of ours, Howard says, rewire. So make the connections. Don't the, the the group that had the greatest fall in cognition weren't the, were the ones that were highly cognitively active, and they retired. And guess what happened? They just had a decline, the high, the steepest decline in cognition. Yeah, and, and studies show that job complexity or there there's this term, beautiful term, idea density. Oh, I love know, that term. Which which shows the complexity of your daily activities. That has been associated with increased brain capacity and even size. Uh, People who have complex lives actually have a bigger, healthier brain. So Aisha and Sophie sing, and my daughter, and and I I, am a terrible guitar player, but we just decided that we're going, how about this for a band name? Idea density. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's good. So so that's that's I like the, that name. Yeah, so that's critical. Keep the brain active around your passions. Remember positive stress? The positive part was your purpose. And purpose doesn't mean I'm gonna save the world. It could be I'm gonna learn a musical instrument, I'm gonna lead a volunteer group, I'm going to do that. But do something that challenges the brain around your positive stress. And when you're doing it, it's not doesn't mean you're not stressed. If you're doing a good job, in fact, you are stressed. You're you're not just doing repetitive behavior. That's where optimizing takes place. That's the highest protection for your brain. Mm-hmm. So you put all of that together, you will prevent Alzheimer's in yourself. And if you do it in, a, in your living situation, for your family as well. And expand cognitive capacity and cognitive living and, 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 and a higher cognitive state in general. Um, the, the last component is habits. We're not gonna talk about that today because that we, we need hours on that because that to us is the most important thing, which is how to truly inculcate these behaviors into your life. That's critical. And we'll have a session on that and we'll have habit experts with us as well talking. So with that, uh, I would like to say that um, that's what we just spoke in more than hours is what, who we are, what we talk about, what we are about. And, uh, and uh, we'll, uh, you'll, we'll have many other conversations about this and more in the next few weeks, months and years. This was great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.